Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, new archaeology confirms that people and mastodon coexisted in Florida nearly 15,000 years ago. The site combination of there's something right on land that's pre-Clovis, and there's something out there underwater that I think is going to be Clovis or pre-Clovis. It's exciting, <laughs> say the least. We'll discuss Florida ephemera, specifically matchbooks and placemats. They're really fascinating because these tiny little cardboard carriers that, of course, carry matchbooks carry a real story with them. And we'll talk about the Spanish mission system. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. We wash all the artifacts according to, you know, if it's pottery, you want to wash it in water. If it's bone, you just want to leave it alone. Um, you just want to get it cleaned up so that I can do the analysis of the artifacts. Bridget Borders is the on-site lab manager at the Wakulla Springs Archaeological Dig. Yeah, so they'll get stored in the racks overnight so they can dry out so we don't get any mold. Mm -hmm. um, and then I will identify what the object is, the material, um, if it's pottery, I'll identify what kind of pottery it is, and then I'll give it a number so it can be found later on. Um, I put all the information into a spreadsheet. Um, and then little bags get all their little information on it, you know, everything that we know about it on each little bag. Um, and then it gets sent to the archives at the end of the season once we've done all of our analysis. Some exciting discoveries are being made by archaeologists working at Wakulla Springs in northwest Florida, where James Dunbar is the principal investigator. In the 1980s, working at the Page Ladson site just 25 miles from Wakala Springs, Dunbar helped to prove that people and mastodon coexisted in Florida nearly 15,000 years ago, much earlier than previously believed. Dave Webb, who is now Professor Emeritus at the University of Florida, he was a vertebrate paleontologist, and he and I got together in 1983, seems like the other day, and started the Asilla Research Project and found a site that was named Page Latson. And after several years of work and carbon dates and all kinds of different samples, we determined that we had a component that was, well, actually 14,500 years old. And that's a battery of very, very many radiocarbon dates. And the beauty of that site is that it's about 30 feet below sea level in the middle of the river, but because it's that far down and water sort of pooled in that depression through time, fragile organic things like uh, gourd seeds were preserved and mastodon digesta, which is the gut track of a mastodon, and we had a mastodon down there that had died, and we have evidence that it was uh, if not killed, butchered. And I think they hunted it and they butchered it, but the hunting part you can't quite prove. 
but that turned out to be very controversial because for 75 years, there had been this paradigm called Clovis first, and everybody knew there wasn't anything in the Americas older than Clovis. So when we came out with the book, it caused a lot of controversy. And we had a second opinion done later on by Texas A&M University and their underwater archeologist. And they found the same identical thing we did. So it is a bona fide pre-Clovis site that's one of the oldest well-documented in North America right now. Dunbar and his team are continuing a history of archaeology at Wakulla Springs that goes back to the mid-19th century. The history of Wakulla Springs and its underwater resources goes back to 1850. Uh, George King was a prominent sort of adventurer that came down to Wakulla and recovered almost an intact mastodon. And somehow he transferred that mastodon to P.T. Barnum, who put it in his museum. Uh, and it appears we're still doing the historic research on it. Andy Hemmings, who works with us, is doing this. Uh, but it appears that maybe the mastodon was pulled out of there before that museum burned down in 1865. And so there's sort of a pedigree there. Uh, later in 1930, Herman Gunter came in with the Florida Geological Survey, recovered an intact mastodon, and it is now on display at the Florida Museum of History here in Tallahassee. But what nobody knew at the time is that they also found artifacts that would be old enough to be associated with that mastodon. But there was such a controversy at that time about were people even here in the country uh, during the time the big animals were around. By about 1935 that had been demonstrated uh, and by 1941 uh, one of the geological survey employees wrote a letter to an archaeologist saying well we found two of these projectile points with that mastodon. Dunbar heads the Osceola Research Institute and the excavation in and around Wakulla Springs continues today under his direction. In 2018, we went back and we were looking at yet a different mastodon and we just barely got a peek at it. Did a little bit of testing, know that it's uh, laying on its side with the head and the backbone sort of facing to the north and the legs facing to the south. Uh, it's in sediment that would suggest that river was flowing at the time. It has something in the sediment that's called the banded mystery snail. And uh, it's a species that's no longer extant in Wakulla Springs, probably too much saltwater intrusion when hurricanes happen. We don't know why they became extinct, but the mastodon is clearly in sediment that's Pleistocene age and we're just now getting a little bits and pieces back. Apparently it's rich in pollen, it's rich in botanical, and so we'll find some other things out. Edward Ball bought what is now the Wakulla Springs State Park in 1931, where he built a hotel called Wakulla Lodge. In 1955, archeologist Calvin Jones found some interesting artifacts on the site, some of which have gone missing. Today, some of the oldest artifacts created by human beings in Florida are found only in photographs. 
the lodge has a, a mastodon upper max. It's sort of the roof of the mouth with the tooth rows. And it's on display. It was on display in the 1970s when the late Dan Morris, who was a physical anthropologist at FSU, took photographs of the mastodon palette. And inside the palette was a Simpson point. And when the state went to buy the property, that point disappeared, which is very unfortunate. So it always occurred to us that maybe the preform we say it's a Simpson, but how do we really know it's a Simpson? Well, we solved that this year and found the Simpson point in place, uh, which is always good to have that verification. But we went to the site to begin with because of what happened at Page Latson and some of the tool types that we didn't find in place there, they were from displaced context, were being found by Calvin in an in-place, you know, in-place, in-situ situation. So we went back to try to define this, what looks like a fledgling new culture, if you want to call it that. Uh, some of the very earliest Americans, and uh, as of 2018, we have an idea of what their toolkit looks like a little bit more. We have some dates that are coming in that I would say, roughly speaking, it's going to be about 13,600 to 14,300 years old. And that older date really is very close to Page Latson's site age. And the questions we now have are, do we have one cultural expression or two that are pre-Clovis? Um, is Simpson one thing and Page Latson another? And if that's the case, Paige Latson may be a little bit older and Simpson somewhere a little bit younger. But what's interesting about the Simpson manufacture technique, it looks like it's the ancestor of Clovis to me. The way they're flaking it is really interesting. So at the Paige Latson site, Dunbar and his team proved that human beings and megafauna like Mastodon occupied what would become Florida at the same time almost 15,000 years ago. It appears that his current excavations at Wakulla Springs will support that finding. And that was one of our main missions, to come to Wakulla. At the Page Ladson site, there was no land-based atigraphy that was worth it. It was only very thin sediments. At Wakulla, we knew we had one, two, three meters of sediment column, uh, which would give you the stratigraphic, separation, sort of the layer cake of time, if you want to call it that, to be able to find different components in their proper stratigraphic position. And we've pretty much done that. But the other part of our mission is to try to see if we can correlate whatever is on land with what is being found out underwater. And like I say, we just barely scratch a surface on the underwater part of it, but it's there. James Dunbar is amazed by the technological advancements that have been made in the tools that archaeologists use, such as blood residue analysis, radiocarbon dating, and 3D imaging. I had a professor way back in the 70s, uh, Charles Fairbanks, and he, and he knocked into our heads that you don't try to go into an archaeological site and dig the whole thing, because 20 years from now, there are going to be new techniques and new testing methods you can't even dream of. And I can, I'm living proof that that's true because 
OSL dating, for example, didn't exist until a, the geologists started perfecting that in 2000. It became mainline and was starting to be used on archaeological sites, and by 2008 we used it at Wakala Springs, and now we're using it again. And what optically stimulated luminescence dating is, it will date the last time a grain of sand saw sunlight. So you gotta starve it, keep it starved to sunlight. The person that did the OSL dating for us, a fellow named Jim Feathers, I think he separates out about 250 single grains of very, very fine grain sand and dates each individual sand grain. That's really beneficial in Florida. It gives you an age, but it also gives you an idea of the stratigraphic integrity of a site, which is important. Now that we know that people and megafauna coexisted at Wakala Springs between 14 and 15,000 years ago, Dunbar says there is much more to discover about Florida's indigenous people. I think the most important thing to be thinking about is that we have a culture or cultures that were here prior to the time of Clovis so it's older than we thought, let me put it that way. And because that now has been shown at Page Latson, and I think we can show it now at Wakulla, now we have to fall back and say, okay, what's this culture about? And try to find, uh, to the best of our ability, uh, its you know, cultural toolkit that uh, they use to make everyday living and that kind of thing. And if we're so fortunate to find an underwater site, that has their artifacts, we probably will also be able to find botanical remains, uh, maybe even some genetic, those kind of things that you don't usually get on land. Uh, but the site combination of there's something right on land that's pre-Clovis and there's something out there underwater that I think is gonna be Clovis or pre-Clovis is exciting, <laughs> say the least. To find out more about Jim Dunbar's work at Wakulla Springs, check out the latest issue of the magazine Adventures in Florida Archaeology, published by the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute. The magazine is available in print or in electronic form at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. 
Ben, over the years, the Florida Historical Society Archive has collected various Florida ephemera. Today, we're looking at matchbooks and placemats. Yeah, that's right, Ben. What I've pulled down from the archive are two three-ring binders that house, as you said, collections of matchbooks. And then we also have these placemats, which were kind of more curious items in the Florida Historical Society's collections. But I'll just open up to the first item we're looking at, this collection of matchbooks. And the first thing you see probably that, that really strikes you is the colors and the variations in different colors. Collecting matchbooks was really kind of a popular hobby and, and, and still is. And folks that collect matchbooks are called voluminists, and that literally translates to a lover of light, which is kind of fitting for one who collects matchbooks. But they're, they're really fascinating because these tiny little cardboard carriers that, of course, carry matchbooks carry a real story with them. And a lot of people collected them when they traveled around the country. They would pick up a matchbook from the local restaurant or hotel or bar, wherever they were staying, and it kind of represented that time and place in, in their lives. And this collection consists of about a few hundred, and they mostly cover the southeastern part of the state, regionally speaking. So we're talking about Broward County, Miami-Dade County, so some of the hotels and restaurants that were in that area. And some of those that were featured still exist today. One of the more beautiful ones is this large blue matchbook that shows the Fontainebleau, which is the famous hotel in Miami Beach. We also have the Mai Tiki restaurant, which was kind of a themed restaurant that, that still exists in Fort Lauderdale today in, in Broward County. We have some from early Holiday Inn hotels, what they called a motor lodge at that time, these the uh, drive-up motor inns and motor lodge. The Buccaneer Lodge, which was in Fort Lauderdale. We also have golf courses. So you'll see these golf courses and printed on this tiny little piece of cardboard, you actually have all nine holes of this golf course intricately laid out and then printed in various colors. So even just the print technique on some of these early matchbooks are really, really beautiful. And then if we flip over and we look at some of the table mats, kind of the same themes, you see these really beautiful colors, wonderfully decorated uh, artistic pieces that uh, fortunately have survived today. Because as you said, these were created as ephemeral pieces. They weren't really designed to last that long, but somebody had the foresight to kind of set these aside and keep them for later generations. Now, these are definitely fun to look at, but why does the Florida Historical Society consider them worth collecting? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, on the surface, you would look at something like this, and most people would probably dismiss it as, as, again, really just being a collection or sort of being junk. But as I alluded to earlier, they really represent a time and place, not only in someone's life, but in Florida's history. So if we look back at the mid-20th century, 1950s, 1960s, up into the 1970s, when a lot of people were traveling to the state of Florida to visit places like Disney World and, and visit the beaches, and it was really the beginnings of the modern tourism industry that exists in Florida today. These are representative of that time and place. And as I said before, they're beautifully illustrated, but a lot of these restaurants, hotels, and, and establishments no longer exist. So for those doing research on the early industry in Florida, the tourism industry in Florida in the 40s, 50s, 60s, these are great original resources because it not only gives you oftentimes a rendering of what the building looked like, but it gives a, a location, uh, sometimes ownership, details about what it was like to visit this particular establishment at this particular time period. They're also very important for artistic reasons. As I said before, they're beautifully done. And there was an artist who laid out all of these wonderful illustrations and the font work. So it's very popular now to get this kind of mid-century, the font. People are looking for different artistic renderings. So for many, this may serve as a stylistic guide for someone who's trying to attain that kind of mid-century look. So what it was like to be in Miami Beach in the 1950s, staying at the Fontainebleau. You can kind of get a little glimpse of that from this tiny little matchbook or from the placemat at one of these diners that was located in Southeast Florida. 
Usually archives are very aware of any potential source of flame and avoid them, but these matchbooks look like they're stored pretty carefully. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're storing matchbooks. I mean, these things were designed to start a flame, but they are fairly safe. So we actually encapsulate these in a plastic. They're also housed inside of a larger box, and they're away from our paper collections. So there is a level of precaution that we do have to take. But generally, yeah, these, these are designed to not spontaneously combust. But as you said, we have thousands of these tiny little matches that, uh, you know, if they were exposed to extreme heat or obviously if they were struck, they could potentially catch a fire, which would be disastrous for an arc. So we do take some precaution. We keep them away from a lot of our other paper collections, and and they're stored in a series of other boxes. And and it's important, too, because as these materials degrade, just as paper materials degrade, as new technology comes along to figure out new ways to kind of store and deal with the natural uh, degradation process that will occur with any kind of archival artifact, we have to kind of be cognizant of that, and we have to take into consideration new ways of storing this material so that it will survive for future generations. Well, these are fun items to look at. Thanks a lot, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see the Florida ephemera we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Part of the reason that the Spanish came to Florida in the 16th century was to spread Catholicism. Holly Baker is public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. She has this look at the Spanish mission system. In the second half of the 16th century, the Kingdom of Spain's Philip II authorized Pedro Menendez to establish missions throughout the Floridas to convert indigenous people to Christianity. By the 17th century, there were dozens of Spanish missions in North Florida and the Panhandle. Dr. Daniel Murphy is an associate professor of history at the University of Central Florida. He's also the author of several articles and books, including the book, Constructing Floridians, Natives and Europeans in the Colonial Floridas, 1513 to 1783. Dr. Murphy recently talked to me about the mission system that developed in the Floridas between 1566 and 1675. Missionaries had been part of the Florida colonization venture on behalf of the Spanish and the French from the very beginning. There are almost always religious figures, if not a missionary, a priest, or someone like that on most of the expeditions, the DeSoto expeditions, things you hear of. It really intensified after um, 1565 when the French were kind of ousted from Atlantic coastal Florida by the Spanish. And then you had kind of the first real settlement regime come in under Pedro Menendez. He was the first governor. And he thought missionary work was going to be very valuable for Spain in terms of not just colonizing Florida, but forming relationships, positive relationships with the native peoples. This was also a part of kind of the, the general Spanish approach to North American colonization, whereas they didn't have a whole lot of colonists coming over, so they needed some way to defend it, and they believed that creating a viable mission system in the northern tier of Florida would be a good way to kind of almost set up a, a, a populated boundary, even if it wasn't necessarily of colonists or of armies. The mission system in Florida was a network of more than a dozen Spanish missions that stretched from St. Augustine to the Panhandle region near the Panama City area. These missions became the principal mode of Spanish colonization in Florida. 
There were also places where Native Americans and Europeans interacted on a daily basis, at the church, in the village square, or while trading with one another. Typically, there weren't large numbers, so you could have maybe one to two friars or one to two priests administering to the entire mission. Very rarely would you have more than that. But you'd probably have dozens or perhaps hundreds of natives that either lived in the immediate vicinity of the mission itself, sometimes living in the mission or kind of right outside of it. But you almost always had some type of garrison created there, too, by uh, the Spanish soldiers. Again, usually it wasn't large in numbers, but the idea was the mission either needed to be protected or it needed to show the military might of Spain. And the idea was it would promise that there was a greater Spanish military capability behind it. The, the missions were almost always set up near pre-existing native villages, and that was the idea. The idea was to take the mission to the natives. So you, you had kind of a vibrant native culture surrounding the missions itself. So in addition to maybe getting spiritual salvation, they could also get material wealth as well, all of the missions. The Spanish mission system was in place for more than 100 years. Almost all of the Spanish missions were gone by 1708. Dr. Murphy told me more about what led to the end of the Spanish mission system in Florida. Disease played a massive role in depopulating Florida of its native peoples. We have numbers as high as the hundreds of thousands of natives living in peninsular Florida before colonization. By the time the mission system really falls apart in the early 1700s, this possible hundreds of thousands of natives were gone and you only had really maybe a dozen um, uh, or 12,000 natives. And even that's a high number. And it's also for the entire peninsula. So these 12,000 Indians would have been highly dispersed. And even though the, the missions were places where some natives went for protection, they couldn't be protected from diseases. And in fact, of course, because of the way that mission functioned, it was one of the worst places to be if you were trying to avoid disease because new people were coming all the time, which potentially brought more. Today, only two Spanish mission sites are open to the public in Florida, the Nombre de Dios mission in St. Augustine, and Mission San Luis, near Tallahassee, the only restored mission in Florida. As Dr. Murphy explains, the brief existence of the Spanish mission system can be seen as a symbol of Spanish colonization in Florida. The system as a whole was really significant and unique because it was really the main presence of the Spanish in Florida for, for 100 years at least. If you think of Spanish Florida, if you're thinking of what they brought, that's what they brought. It was the, the missions. And the fact that they had so much trouble with them and that they ultimately fell apart really is kind of a, um, you know, it's a sub-narrative to the Spanish in Florida anyway, uh, or overall, in the sense that if you track the mission system, it kind of shows you the greatest extent of Spanish influence in Florida, but it also shows you how it's declining. And so by 1700, or the beginning of the 1700s, when the mission system is collapsing, the Spanish presence in Florida is, is negligible. It's, it's Spanish Florida in name only. The Spanish aren't controlling it, and of course the English know this, the French know it, and ultimately the U.S. knows it, and that's why it was very easy to, to subsequently ouster the Spanish. Remember, the Spanish are pretty much gone in the 1760s for the first time. You could call it a slow death. So for 60 years, their empire was hemorrhaging, and you can connect that to the mission system as kind of a symbol. But the mission system is kind of symbolic, I guess, is the best way to say it, of the Spanish in Florida. It was limited, it did have an impact, but it, it was fleeting. It didn't last very long, and once it was gone, the Spanish power, if they ever had any in Florida, was largely gone too. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. 
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.